Well, today, as Colin just announced to all of you, is the third Sunday in Advent, and I'll just gently remind all of you, Advent is a, a temporally strange season in that we look, we look backward to the first coming of Jesus in order to look forward to His second coming. It's uh, simple logic in some ways, but hard to do. We look and study the way that the Messiah first came in order that we can be better prepared for His second coming. And so, we sit here today, literally, right in the middle, right in the middle of things. And I think if we're honest, even though Jesus' first coming gives us this profound and tangible, historically verified hope, it's sort of a down payment, it can be hard here in the middle to believe that what He says He will do will actually happen which is, I'll add, nothing short of the establishment of perfect justice and perfect peace over the entirety of the world. You see, it's in the middle, as we apprehend that work, that it can be easy to lose hope. Between the years of 1936 and 1942, T.S. Eliot, the famous poet and literary critic, published what he considered to be his absolute masterpiece. You've probably heard of it. You've probably read it. It's called The Four Quartets. It's a a collection of four long poems. The first was written in the interwar period between World War I and World War II. It's called Burnt Norton. It's largely about time, and it's this kind of deep and profound exploration of philosophy and time. But the second poem, East Coker, shifts. It was published in 1940. It was written as the Second World War had erupted across Europe. And Eliot takes a a slightly darker turn in the poem. He was 52 when he wrote it. A few years before his his marriage, which was very public, had fallen apart. And also his intellectual community, the famous Bloomsbury group, began to distance themselves from him because he had converted to Anglo-Catholicism, to Christianity, which was not popular for the intellectual elite of London. And so, toward the end of the poem, it's strange, it's almost as if he begins to speak in a completely autobiographical way. He writes this, he says, So here I am in the middle way, having had 20 years, 20 years largely wasted, trying to learn to use words, and every attempt is a wholly new start and a different kind of failure. He continues, Each venture is a new beginning arrayed on the inarticulate with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision and feeling. You see, for Eliot, somewhere in the middle way, he began to wonder if any of his life or his calling, his vocation, made sense, if it cohered in any discernible way at all. And I think that sentiment can be true for us as well, can't it? It's that time between the times. It can feel as if every resource and every effort that we make is undertaken with shabby equipment always deteriorating. And it's then that we begin to wonder, does any of this fit together? What have I wasted? Is there any coherence to the way my life might end or continue at all? The middle of life, the middle of a career, the middle of a marriage, the middle of a promise that doesn't seem to actualize. You see, it's, it's here right in, the, right in the middle that we begin to doubt. 
And I think it's actually just this sentiment that is presented in our gospel reading today. I'll remind you how it goes. It's a story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in jail in our reading. He had spoken out publicly against Herod's divorce and remarriage. Turns out speaking about the king's personal lives doesn't work out very well. So he's thrown into prison. And as we learned in our last our re- gospel reading from last week, we saw that John had gathered this enormous following. Crowds from all over Judea had flocked into the middle of nowhere to uh, sit at his feet and to be cleansed from their sins, to experience the renewal that comes through repentance and true devotion to God. He had become this powerful figure, even though he was a man of no social or economic status. And the narrative is clear on that point. His presentation, it says, is unrefined and humble. I wore a coat of camel's hair and a belt of leather. I heard an Episcopal priest one time say that he was like John the Baptist because he was wearing a camel hair sport coat. Uh, That's not the idea here. (laughs) But he was a prophet. That's what's important. He was a prophet. He was the last great prophet, tradition says, of Israel. And as such, he was one of the few people in all of Scripture to receive and to prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ in some unprompted way. For instance, if we look back to the Gospel of John, we see that when he encounters John the Baptist, he announces publicly in front of all of his followers, all of his friends, all of his disciples, that this man, Jesus, is, quote, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Then he continues to baptize Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God descends from heaven, and a voice declares over the whole event that this one is his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, whom he loves and whom all should obey. You see, John's faith is rewarded with this piercing clarity about precisely who Jesus is. So now that you have John's spiritual capacity in mind, can't you begin to see and even feel the dissatisfaction or at least that curiosity that John must have felt as he sat in a Roman prison chained to the wall while he hears nothing of Jesus taking over Jerusalem? He hears nothing of Jesus throwing out the Roman authorities. He hears nothing about Jesus building an army of spiritual purists. Nothing that he thinks should be happening is happening. So what does he do? He questions. You see, it's interesting. He doesn't doubt, at least according to our reading, that there is a coming Messiah. He doesn't even complain about the circumstances, which I think would be understandable. We also have no idea what his emotional state truly was, except that he sends one message to Jesus from prison, and he says, are you really the one I thought you would be, or should we wait for another? Because the world doesn't look any different than I thought it would be. In other words, John is in the middle. Promises have been made to John. God's voice appeared from on high. Great things began to happen across all of Judea, And yet John sits in a prison chained to a wall, looks out of the world that is exactly the same as he had left it. And I think in Advent, in a way, that's the same for us as well, isn't it? Promises have been made to us. God's voice has appeared in the Scriptures. Great things began to happen after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And yet things can feel very much the same, can't they? And I bet all of us begin to wonder, is this really true? Is Jesus really who he says he is? Because the world doesn't look that different than I had hoped it would. In effect, we can say deep in our hearts to Jesus, are you really the one? Or should we go and find something else? But before we begin to unpack Jesus' answer, I want you to simply note the way Jesus actually engages with John's question. Notice he does not say that John is a fool. He doesn't say John is weak. He doesn't even say that John is a doubter, which would be understandable. You remember exactly what he says. He says, there is no one born of women, anyone, who is greater than John the Baptist. No one greater than John the Baptist, doubting in a Roman prison. And so after even our own reading, he goes on to quote this prophecy of Malachi. You see parts of it in the reading that we have, but if you read further, he says, if you will believe it, John is actually the Elijah who was promised. He is the one Scripture told us who would come to announce the coming of the Messiah. He is the true Elijah. Jesus says that about John. He is Elijah. But what's fascinating here is if you look back to the very beginning of the Gospel of John in chapter 1, priests, Levitical masters, the, the religious elite approach John. They ask him just this question, are you Elijah? And what does John say? He says, no. But you see what's remarkable here is what this means for us is that God uses, in fact, it seems he delights in using people to do incredible things when they have no idea who exactly they are. John has no idea that he is Elijah. And I think that makes sense of why he begins to doubt in that Roman prison cell if Jesus really is the one to bring the kingdom of God to the people of God because, again, he doesn't even know who he is. He knows, but he doesn't fully know, you see. And so here's what Jesus says to John. He says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised and the poor receive good news. All of these things are amazing things and they are all true. But these things are all things that John already knows. And so the question that you might have is, what could possibly be significant about this report? It's two things. One is simple and one is complex. First, this report from Jesus is meant to emphasize the credibility of what is actually happening. You see, Jesus quotes directly from Isaiah 35 in that passage. It's a passage that we just read this morning, in fact. And what he's saying is that all of the scriptures, John, that you know, that you've memorized, that you've meditated upon for your whole life, the words that you trust, they all speak of my coming. They all point to what I am doing. They all reveal who I really am. In other words, John, maybe you wanted a militia or an army or a a, a takeover of a city, but instead you get me. Maybe you thought I should look like a king, but instead I look like a healer. In other words, John, recalibrate all of us. Recalibrate what you're looking for. You want somebody to fix everything, but I heal, I renew, I begin to do my work at the pace of human life itself. And Scripture even points to it. That's his point. 
Scripture points to who he is. Now, the second thing that Jesus says in this report, it's implicit in here, is because all of that is about me, Isaiah 35 is actually about Jesus Christ, he says. All of it speaks about who I am, what I do, what my purpose is. That means that I actually am in control even when you have no idea that I'm doing it. In other words, you think, read Isaiah, and you say, oh, this must be about Babylon, this must be about Syria, this must be about the restoration of the temple, and it was. But in fact, Jesus is saying, this is most fully and completely about me. And what that means, if you think about it, just pause for a moment, what that means is, if Isaiah is about Jesus, then Jesus himself actually stands as the authority over all of history and all of time. In other words, all of the sequence of events, the historical occurrences, the narratival movement of Israel, the prophecies, all move in such a way that they converge on, gesture toward, and announce precisely who Jesus Christ is. I realize this is complex, but in other words, you think nothing is working out. You look at history and think everything is the same. You think you're stuck in the middle, but Jesus says the kingdom of God is right beside you, and you don't even know it. You think you're in the middle. You think everything looks the same, and I am renewing everything, everything all around you. Of course, what this means for you and me is actually somewhat straightforward. It means we can think we are stuck in the middle of whatever scenario is plaguing us. You can be stuck in the middle of a career you don't like. You can be stuck in the middle of a challenging marriage. You can be stuck in the middle of a diagnosis. Whatever it is, you can be stuck in the middle of. Jesus tells you, as he told the disciples in John 16, fear not. Why? Because I have overcome the world. You see, Advent tells us that in the middle way of our lives, the place where we are most prone to doubt, the place we are most prone to fear and anxiety and hiding, Jesus says, I am most Lord of all. You think everything is out of control. I have everything in my hands. I had an experience of this just last week. I apologize, I always use parenting metaphors because all I do, aside from stuff here, is parenting. Uh, but I have, a, I have a one-year-old daughter, she's 15 months, and she has started to sleep well, but she has teeth coming in, and so she's um, waking up in the middle of the night. So it's several days ago, I woke up to her crying in the middle of the night, and it's as if all of the cribs are designed for pacifiers to fall out of the sides. And so what you have to do is you have to go in there and lay on your back and sort of slide your arm in as far as you possibly can. I had a long day the day before. I was going to have a long day the next day. I was anxious about some things with my family, extended family. I was frustrated. And right there in that moment, it was as if the lights had turned on in the room and I suddenly realized that the kingdom of God is coming, whether I feel it, or whether I know it, or really even whether I fully prepared for it. I can be digging out pacifiers from under my baby's crib, and the kingdom of God is actually at hand. And you see what that means, don't you? It means that there is no situation in your life, period, no situation, where the kingdom of God is not being made manifest in the details of your circumstances. So wherever you sit on Advent 3, be assured The kingdom of God is most certainly 
at hand, whether you feel it or not, whether you conceptually understand it or not, whether you can even see it or not, the kingdom of God is coming because the deposit, the down payment, Jesus Christ, the Holy One, arrived, came as an infant child, and He is coming again. So this Advent season, friends, I would commend to all of you two things. Be renewed by and trust in the Scriptures to point to the Holy One of Israel, Jesus Christ. And second, be aware of the movement of God. Recalibrate your attention to the movement of God in ways that you didn't expect. Because just like John the Baptist, the kingdom of God was at hand, and the kingdom of God was coming. And it's true for all of us, whether you are stuck in the middle, or you're stuck in doubt, or frustration, or anxiety, Advent tells us that the middle is precisely where God meets us. And it's true for us today. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.